Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, sprites, bacteria, and rocks. In addition, we'll be joined by Ms. Kathy Sawyer, who will discuss the rock from Mars. Also, we'll find out what Krypton is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And again, that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It's been a really hot summer, huh? Well, it's not unusual given the fact that the global temperature is rising. <laughs> Have you taken Vialis? You know, it rhymes with Cialis. I haven't, but perhaps one day in the not-too-near future, I might require it. Okay. If you're in Europe, you actually might encounter very often. It's actually the name of a traffic systems manufacturer. Well, you need to know when to stop and when to go. <laughs> of course. But their innovation is they're using this special polymer, an acrylonitrostyrene acrylate copolymer. Oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's used to make these traffic signals, which are like amazingly thin compared to what we have right now. And it's based on an LED technology. Why hasn't this been tried before? Is it just the brightness? That, right. So yeah. that's one of the problems right now. The technology is actually maturing very fast. And at some point, all traffic lights in the States will also be LEDs. But one of the initial problems they had was it was either too bright or the wrong color. Mm. and also that certain colors would fade out faster than others. But sooner or later, all lights will be made of plastic, basically. (laughs) And all restaurants will be Taco Bell. Yes. What a brave new world we live in. (laughs) But this new look is probably going to come to your neighborhood sooner or later. All right, I'll be on the lookout for traffic lights. So if anyone wants to read more, there's a nice article in earlier issue of Chemical and Engineering News. Well, it's too bad Vialis isn't actually a drug company because they uh, might actually be interested in predatory bacteria. Does it stop and go? (laughs) They'll keep going on the other bacteria that they want to hunt. They are nasty, in fact, towards bacteria that they don't like. How about people? That depends. A group of researchers are very interested in bacteria that feed on other bacteria because it could be a potential therapeutic for treating infections with that. Oh, okay. It's sort of like my bacteria is better than your bacteria kind Mm -hmm. of a thing. Well, if you got the right bacteria on your side, (laughs) it's like being in touch with the mob. Uh, One particular type of predatory bug is called mica vibrio, and it basically feeds on other bacteria by latching onto them and sucking out all their insides. And this bacteria isolated almost two decades ago, but it's been pretty much ignored by scientists because it's kind of difficult to grow. But recently, a group of researchers led by Daniel Kaduri of Dartmouth Medical School in Hanover have shown that these can destroy sheets of Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a bug that basically threatens the lives of people with HIV, cancer, or cystic fibrosis, immune-compromised people. And the reason it does that is because it forms a sheet of what are called biofilms in the lungs. Okay. And what these particular predatory bacteria can do is it can sort of clear away those sheets and maybe allow some of the antibiotics to actually start working on them. Wow. So this stuff is found naturally, right? And actually, researchers are thinking that there may be a whole slew of predatory bacteria around there that just need to be cultured and studied more. So maybe it's in your yogurt or something, huh? Could be uh, on your feet, then you don't even know it. Uh-huh. So a very fascinating work. And actually, people have been interested in other types of bacteria. For example, there's one called Bedella vibrio. But I think the thing that hampers research, apparently, is the very 
hard to culture, and so as a result, mm. hard to study. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, scientists are sometimes lazy. I prefer going back to lab then. Oh, you actually go to lab. Sometimes I work. Yeah. So those who actually do work and are interested in pursuing this, they can take a look. It was presented at the recent American Society of Microbiology meeting in Orlando. So, Charles, do you know what sprites are? The measure of the change in acceleration versus time? So the sprites are referring to are lightning streaks in the atmosphere. Instantaneous bursts of light in the air, charged uh, particles. Even more instantaneous than lightning. It's extremely fast, like a fraction of a second, and could go on for miles and miles. But it just lasts for just a few moments. It was first accidentally filmed back in 1989 when they were actually trying to film a rocket and they accidentally caught the sprite. And since then, scientists have been trying to film more of them, especially during uh, thunderstorms. Can they try and reproduce this in, for example, labs? They actually have tried to do that with you know ionized environments mm-hmm. or um, high uh, electricity discharge chambers. So it's not known what effect these sprites have on the uh, atmosphere, but it's something that could elucidate how uh, early atmosphere may have formed. Right. Do they also influence like, during just lightning strikes as well? So they're actually a different mechanism. Mm, okay. But the one thing they've identified is that they, it does split up oxygen. Huh, okay. Atomic oxygen in the air, which uh, subsequently would form ozone. That is certainly interesting for atmospheric chemists. Right. But there's probably a number of other species which are also there that they are still trying to identify. Hmm. And so this is one of the mysteries of the atmosphere that scientists are working on these days. Oh, okay. And in order to observe these sprites, a lot of the cameras they have, you need them to especially a high speed, so about <laughs> maybe a thousand frames a second. Ahmed Zavail down at Caltech and do femtochemistry, right? They can at least do a thousand frames a second. Right? <laughs> right. One of the problems in trying to collect the residues up there is that once the sunlight hits it, basically all, all trace of it just disappears. The sunlight's more or less a 800-pound gorilla in terms of the uh, photochemical effects. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting field that atmospheric scientists are now trying to pursue. All right. Well, I hope they got the sprite in you. <laughs> Anyone wants to read more, it's an article in the March 20th issue of Chemical and Engineering. Finally, maybe there'll be planets in outer space that have sprites as well. Not just our Earth, huh? I guess our Earth is just not special enough anymore, because <laughs> researchers are now finding more and more planets orbiting distant stars than were previously known. That means there might be life out there. Trying Although, f- I mean, I, I guess having a planetary system is not a requisite. Not sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> but a team led by astronomers Michael Mayer and Didier Quelloz at Geneva Observatory in Switzerland were monitoring a particular star called HD 69830, and have found evidence for three extrasolar planets orbiting that particular star. And the interesting thing about this is it doesn't have a big bully like Jupiter orbiting with them, one of the unique aspects about this particular system. So, I mean, do most planetary systems have like a big bully in it? Apparently, a lot of the stars that they found thus far have really massive gas giants orbiting around it. I see. Partly because the way they pick up these stars is basically looking at the wobble from the Uh gravitational attraction. Uh And I think the resolution initially was you need really massive planets to be able to detect this. Right. But I think they've been able to refine it a little bit more. So it's actually fascinating because they actually found one particular world which is 18 times as massive as Earth orbiting in about 197 days. But the interesting thing is that it's kind of a mild area so this planet might have moons that would have water perhaps and even life. Who knows? Maybe they sent their only son to save us. (laughs) 
And what could he possibly do? He can fly. <laughs> Hopefully he can cool down the planet. Thing. He has a super breath, right? And of course he can move time backwards by Reversing the spin of the Earth. Yeah, right? it's amazing. How can you do that? I'm not worried. I... So we can go back to a simpler time before the show even started. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually very fascinating. Actually, Jeffrey Marcy here at the University of California, Berkeley, described this particular system as gorgeous and unique. So that's something to be said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Well, coming up next, Ms. Kathy Sawyer will join us to discuss the rock from Mars. So stay tuned. back to the Grok Science Show. Well, about 19,000 years ago, a rock fell to Earth and landed in Antarctica, where it waited until 1984 when it was finally discovered. The rock was eventually identified as having originated from Mars, and perhaps even more surprisingly, as having signs of ancient life embedded within it. But this discovery was not without controversy and touched off a worldwide frenzy. Well, join us today on the Grok Science Show to discuss this amazing story is Ms. Kathy Sawyer. Ms. Sawyer is a former science reporter for the Washington Post who has penned a new book called The Rock from Mars, a detective story on two planets, which discusses the story surrounding the uh, Martian meteorite. Ms. Sawyer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure to be here, Charles. Uh, well, it's certainly my pleasure to have you on the program since this is, I think, a really very fascinating book. And I think many of us probably recall the story of the uh, the Martian meteorite, but I guess for those maybe born after the fact, or <laughs> I was wondering if you could give us maybe a little bit of a history of the discovery of the Martian meteorite. Uh, Well, the the rock in question actually arrived on Earth some 13,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. and it is, as Science Magazine put it, the most intensively studied two kilograms of rock in history. (laughs) More than 100 metric tons of the most advanced lab equipment on this planet have been brought to bear on it, and, and yet it's still something of a mystery. The rock's adventures among Earthlings began in December 1984 in the dazzling sunlight of an Antarctic summer, Mm. where a young woman named Robbie Score, a geologist then with NASA, discovered the rock lying on a field of ancient blue ice. And the book traces how, just 12 years later, the rock became the subject of international headlines, a Rose Garden statement (laughs) by President Clinton, a White House summit of religious and cultural leaders, and even a sex scandal that (laughs) ended with the resignation of a top Clinton advisor. Of course, the ferocious scientific dispute that you mentioned. Right. As you mentioned, it it sort of laid dormant after it was found for almost 12 years before anything was really made of it. What happened there in that intervening time? Robbie Score found it. She was a member of a National Science Foundation team of meteorite hunters. Mm. That's a pretty interesting story in itself. But this team brought the rock back to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, and it went through the usual process of identification and cataloging, sort of a preparation for the actual researchers who might want to work on such rocks. 
and it got miscategorized, misidentified as an ordinary plain vanilla meteorite of the sort that we have by the thousands that mm. come from asteroids, which are chunks of rubble left over from the formation of the solar system. And so this rock languished on a shelf at Johnson Space Center for a long time until someone asked for it, a guy named Duck Middlefelt, mm. who was doing research on ordinary meteorites. He was trying to do a, a major research project to identify, to categorize ordinary meteorites of a certain class. And it turned out, as he pondered this rock, he saw that it just didn't fit in at all uh, with those other ordinary meteorites, but he started realizing that it had certain characteristics that were similar to a family of rocks known as SNCs. Well, I won't go into the jargon, but mm. they're a family of rocks known to be from Mars. Mm. And how did anybody know they were from Mars? Mm -hmm. Well, Trapped gases inside the rocks were shown to be exactly like the atmosphere of Mars. Mm. And how did we know what the atmosphere of Mars was like? Because in the mid-70s, the Viking spacecraft landed on Mars and sampled the Martian atmosphere mm. and sent back that data. And so all of this research was necessary in order for this rock to be identified as Martian. And this, at the time that Duck Middlefelt made this identification, this was only the 12th known rock from Mars found mm. on Earth. And now we have something more than 30 identified Martian meteorites. But mm. these are the only rocks from Mars that can be studied in Earth laboratories because there has never been a mission to bring back actual samples from Mars. We have to rely on this natural infall from <laughs> space and then identify these rare, precious rocks that fall on Earth from Mars. Right. Uh, well, it's, it's certainly a stroke of luck that they, it was found. Um, the big finding, though, in the rock was that there were presumably signs of life. Well, that's what yeah. the controversy is right. all about. This young researcher named Chris Romanek, who was actually a postdoc working at uh, Johnson Space Center, but he was not a NASA employee, he saw certain intriguing features in the rock that reminded him of features found in hot springs on Earth that mm. some people claimed were something called nanofossils. Mm. That's also controversial. Some people say they're not mm. nanofossils, they're not bio biological features. Mm. But anyway, they looked very provocative to Chris Romanek, and he started studying these features, and they made sense at the time because at the time there was a major revolution taking place in human understanding of the, the very basic nature of life as we find it on Earth. Scientists were finding uh, life thriving in all sorts of places previously thought to be lifeless, lethal to life, such as the bottom of the ocean where no sunlight penetrates, mm -hmm. and such as in ice in Antarctica and in, in rock places where life was not previously known to exist. And, any, and so this encouraged the notion that life could exist in all sorts of alien places, mm -hmm. such as other planets that have these extreme temperatures and pressures and no sunlight penetrates and you have to rely on chemical energy or some other form of energy. And the evidence that eventually emerged from these studies and, and a very secret collaboration by some senior scientists at, at Johnson Space Center were carbonates, which are carbonate globules, which are associated with marine life in the oceans of Earth, mm -hmm. some smelly hydrocarbons of the sort that um, you might see on a, a, a charred piece of steak that you've mm -hmm. barbecued too close to the fire, 
and some tiny microfossil-like hmm. shapes that they looked like worms or they looked hmm. like wriggly things. They looked like certain bacteria on Earth, only they were much, much smaller. Hmm. And then the final line of evidence was some magnetic crystals that are only known on Earth when they are formed by bacteria to use as tiny compasses. They're magnetic crystals that act as, as compasses to help them find food and water. And so these were the basic elements that this team of NASA and Stanford scientists claimed suggested to them life on early Mars. Hmm. But each one of these things taken singly could have been formed without the presence of biology. Hmm. But this team took a holistic approach and suggested that it was the whole package, the, the rocks gestalt, if you will, <laughs> that suggested that life had deposited these remnants, these clues. Well, that, that was sort of the source of the controversy, as, as you mentioned, that each of these elements could probably have been formed also from natural geological processes. Yes. And that, as you talk in the book, led to a lot of interesting academic squabbling. <laughs> oh, quite a bit. Yeah. This was one of the great big enchiladas of science, and it triggered an intense feud. People tackled every single different element of the story and tried to disprove it. And uh, in the view of some people, it has been, if not disproven, then it's certainly uh, the, the hypothesis that there's life in the rock has not been proven. But what, what happened along the way, and I think this is one reason it's such a fascinating and worthy case study, is that this claim of life in, in the Mars rock generated a ton of new knowledge and the development of new techniques and represented really, in, in my humble view, the way that science is supposed to work. It's a very messy human process, mm -hmm. but it's not a matter of who wins and who loses, but it contributed to our overall state of knowledge, and it served as a wake-up call to people, for instance, planning missions to Mars to bring back samples mm -hmm. or explorations of, say, a moon of Saturn or Jupiter to look for signs of life, that this is the kind of dispute that would probably break out over any such sample that came back. Mm -hmm. And so they, they knew that they had a lot more work to do to understand how to differentiate mere chemistry from biochemistry. Mm -hmm. How does chemistry turn into biochemistry? How do you define that? And mm -hmm. so forth and so on. So there's been lots of work along those lines. Right. Uh, one of the other uh, features that you mentioned in the book that was somewhat interesting was the Clinton uh, White House scandal that uh, erupted because of the uh, the Martian meteorite. Oh, yes, it's the Dick Morris episode, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, well, in a nutshell, President Clinton's trusted advisor, Dick Morris, had been seeing a call girl and <laughs> letting her listen in on his private calls with the president. Right. And, of course, along the way, to impress her, uh, Morris whispered to her about this hush-hush secret news about possible life on Mars. And she, meanwhile, was trying to sell her story to a tabloid and <laughs> using the rock, her knowledge of the story of the rock, as proof of her credibility. She got things a little bit confused. She wrote in her diary that they had discovered life on Pluto. <laughs> this was, of course, wrong. But in the end, her diary about the rock gave her the leverage she needed to get her story published, mm. and Dick Morris was forced to resign right in the middle of the Democratic presidential nominating convention and mm. embarrassed the president, and that was just one of the ripple effects from this little rock. <laughs> ah, the Martians, they have all kinds of influences. <laughs> um, okay, well, I guess we're running slowly out of time, but I'm curious, uh, so what's been the lasting impact of the discovery of this Martian meteorite? Well, it has helped make the search for extraterrestrial life respectable and fundable, more importantly. Mm -hmm. 
even even if it's only pond scum they're looking for, <laughs> it's helped intermingle that study with the struggle to understand how life started on Earth, which nobody yet understands. Fairly fundamental question. It's dramatized the need for much clearer definitions of how to distinguish life from non-life on any world. And it's, as I said, it served as a wake-up call for people planning missions to the planets that they might not be able to recognize an alien microbe mm. unless it actually bit them. Right. <laughs> Were the things that people had to now pay attention to here? Ms. Sawyer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show and talking about your uh, very fascinating book, The Rock from Mars. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you were just listening to Ms. Kathy Sawyer discussing The Rock from Mars. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. Again, it's our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Martian or not Martian. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they came from Mars or are of terrestrial origin. Uh, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? I think so. <laughs> okay. Ready or not, question number one, uh, Martian or not Martian, the iPod? Oh, that's definitely a Martian thing because it's such an ingenious item. It has to come from a superior intellect. <laughs> I guess Steve Jobs, I guess, then must be Martian then, I guess. Yes. <laughs> All right. You saw Men in Black, right? <laughs> I, I think so. so. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, number two, interest-only mortgages. That's very terrestrial, unfortunately. <laughs> You, you have to have earth, dirt, to build a house on, and so... <laughs> I, guess, I guess microbes wouldn't be interested in, in a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three, Texas Hold'em Poker. I would say not Martian, but possibly Jovian. Jovian, okay. <laughs> Jupiter, because, you know, everything Texas is as big as you can right. get, and, and that's the biggest planet. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we find Texans on Jupiter at some point. Oh, they would be a natural. Uh, number four, the mullet haircut. Oh, the mullet. Uh, 
I would say that the mullet is Martian because it's definitely alien. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly don't look human if you if you're wearing one, I guess. No, no, no. It's it's, it's exotic. But yes. It's definitely alien. Okay, and, and finally, number five, uh, Martian or not Martian, the Bush administration. Oh goodness sake. We journalists are supposed to be apolitical, so uh, okay. I will just say I, I think it would be comforting to say that they're extraterrestrial <laughs> okay. and that they have some superior plan that we don't understand. Uh, well, hopefully it will make recent events uh, make more sense, I imagine, yes, if they that, did. Yes, we can hope for this. Okay. Well, Ms. Sorry, I do want to thank you for uh, sticking around playing our game, The Grokatron 5000, and, and, of course, discussing your book, The Rock from Mars. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. And Kal-El with the answer to last week's question. What is Krypton? You, my noble son, come from a noble planet filled with a noble gas, Krypton. Oh, D-Lock, hit surfer ball, man. I'm trying to catch the waves, dude. Like the electron waves, dude, and they're all over the place, man. They're like in shells of orbital. They're in one particular ones, though. They're called valence shells, dude. Whoa! Tough ride, dude. What are all these valence shells, man? Well, if you know the answer, think you know the answer. Email us at grox at hotmail.com. Dude, you ain't gonna win anything. Man, the waves, they're gonna get you. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music